Friends, we're very aware, aren't we, that we step out into a world that often doesn't know what to make of us as Christian people, that is very skeptical of our faith, that is perhaps scornful of our scruples, dismissive of our Lord. We know that the opposition is real. We sense that persecution could come. What should be our posture? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and Jonathan, that is a great question. You know, when the world looks at us with disdain or skepticism, how do we respond to that? What is that right posture? Well, we need to have a lively and deep faith in the Lord as we engage with culture and society and a world that is sometimes very skeptical of us. We mustn't go out in a posture of fear or with a, with a commitment just to hiding our faith under a bushel, as it were. We need to go out in a spirit of faith as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to trust him with the consequences that may come. You know, there may be consequences. There could be suffering that comes our way. That's possible. That may be our reality in the years to come. But we need to be committed to doing that which is good in the public square. We need to be committed to serving those in our communities and being Christ-like in our interactions with others. And we need to leave the consequences to him. Well, we're going to continue to look at this topic today from the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Grab a Bible and meet us starting in verse 13. Here's Jonathan with a message called, Zealous for What is Good. Notice again what Peter's saying. He's saying, just be ready to tell others why you are hope-filled in a hopeless world, why you are secure in an insecure world, why you are joyful in a joyless world. Be ready for that. And the answer, you know, to that is not complicated. It's simply a matter of saying who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he means to you. That's all. It's not complicated. It doesn't need to be very clever. It just needs to be clear, and it needs to be true, and it needs to come from the heart. Now, I say we don't need to read a stack of books or take a course to do that, and we don't, but Peter does say that we need to be ready, and I think as we consider what it means to be ready and take on board that instruction, there are probably two aspects to this readiness. One is being ready in spirit, and that means really being willing to answer, not being shy or scared or ashamed. That's a kind of heart readiness. But the other aspect of being ready does involve thinking about what we'd say. And it's a good question to consider. If someone said to you, you know, what is it that's different about, about you? Why are you so contented or, or serene or joyful, so filled with hope in these very hopeless days? You know, what, what would you say? I mean, how would you begin to answer that question? Now, that is something you can actually prepare for a little, something you can uh, consider and even work on. I don't normally assign homework, but here's some homework. Why not take a few minutes later today or this week and think through what you would say to that kind of a question. Pray over that. Maybe jot down a couple of thoughts. Practice it at home with another believer, member of the family. Be ready, says Peter, for that conversation, for the question when it comes. He adds another note here, another instruction. He, he tells us that we not only need to be ready to give an answer, but we need to give that answer with gentleness and respect. I don't know what you make of this, but it seems to me that those are two qualities that seem to have fallen out of fashion at the present time. They seem a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit otherworldly. I think of the social media landscape, and it's just extraordinary how aggressive and rude our interactions have become as a society so much of the time. And, you know, this isn't a marginal observation. So much of our social interaction now does take place in the electronic realm, and it's, it's often rude, isn't it? It's often abrasive. 
sometimes crude, and in a, as a society, we're sort of training ourselves to behave in this kind of a way. We are normalizing this kind of behavior. But Peter says, when the opportunity comes for you to give your answer, make sure it is marked by gentleness and by respect. Now, we are so much, I think, on the back foot as Christians at the present time. We, we anticipate pushback and we anticipate pressure and we so easily feel threatened, I think, marginalized, misunderstood, and all the rest. But Peter, Peter urges us, you know, don't succumb to those feelings. We need to keep ourselves on an even keel, and we need to calmly and graciously answer the questions that may come to us about our faith. The idea of respect is interesting because the questions may well come from someone who, who does not share our worldview in any measure, someone whose worldview is actually way out of sync with ours. You know, the question may come from an atheist or a follower of another re religion, an outright idolater, whatever the case may be and whoever the person may be. And we might well think, well, you know, faithfulness in this situation demands that we demolish their idols and refute their arguments. Those, those pagans and idolaters, you know, they need to be set right with some urgency here. We need to tell them that their thinking is darkened and godless and so on. And we might imagine that the Bible would call us to that kind of frankness. But Peter says, perhaps to our surprise, show them respect. Be courteous. It doesn't mean compromising on the truth. It just means being polite and being gracious. It means recognizing that this person with whom you are having a conversation is made in the image of God, is capable of rational thought, and you are able to have a reasonable conversation with them. It means behaving in a Christ-like way. And if we behave in that way, verse 16, here's what the result will be personally. We will have a good conscience. We're not going to need to go home at the end of that particular exchange feeling guilty for our rudeness or our aggression, feeling regretful for you know, putting someone off the gospel by our demeanor, lying awake at night, playing the conversation over in our mind and just being filled with guilt. And this will mean that there's no ammunition for the enemies of the gospel to use against us, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The criticism, the accusations, they may well come, but don't allow those criticisms and accusations to have the force of truth behind them. You may suffer, verse 17. The Lord may allow that, but don't let it be because you have done evil. Let it be for doing the Lord's will in faithfulness. Friends, we're very aware, aren't we, that we step out into a world that often doesn't know what to make of us as Christian people, that is very skeptical of our faith, that is perhaps scornful of our scruples, dismissive of our Lord. We know that the opposition is real. We sense that persecution could come. What should be our posture? First of all, says Peter, there is a zeal that we must foster, a zeal for that which is good. Next, he sets before us a model to follow. And that model is, of course, the model of our Savior himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The instinct to feel and suspect that we have been unfairly treated develops early in life and is honed throughout the years. We see it uh, in the playground. We see it in the boardroom. We have a strong sense of justice and fairness when it comes to considering our own interests. And so when we allow for the possibility of unjust suffering, as Peter presents it to us, of being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, as Peter has said we might be, our first thought may be simply to protest that this is very, very unfair. 
our, our first instinct might be to object and to insist that we should not have to face such unfairness when others before us have not faced it. Why us? Why should we put up with this? Why should such an unfair hand be dealt to us in our day and our age? Now that is, of course, the kind of instinct that resides in each heart, in yours and in mine. And in answer to it, Peter points us to the one who experienced and who exemplified unjust suffering, and in a way and to an extent that you and I never will and never could. And as Peter points us here, he actually takes us back right to the center, to the heart of everything. He takes us to the cross of Calvary. He takes us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ suffered for sins, when he went to the cross to pay the price of my wrongdoing and yours, he went as the righteous one, the guiltless one. He had done no wrong. No sin could be charged against him. No stain could be found on his record. It was not simply the case that he was generally pretty decent and upright, that he was broadly good, largely holy. No, the record of scripture is clear. He was perfectly righteous faultless in his integrity and goodness. You and I, we can never claim that of our record or of our behavior. But Jesus, he had never sinned in thought or word or deed. And yet he went to the cross as the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous. The Bible teaches us that God is a holy God, a God of perfect justice. The price must be paid for his justice to be satisfied. You see, in God's reckoning, evil can never be swept under the carpet or ignored. Sin must always be punished. This is ultimately a universe of justice because God is on the throne. You and I have done the wrong. We deserve to pay the price, but Jesus, the innocent one, the righteous one, he went to the cross in our place, in the place of the unrighteous, and he paid there our debts. He died that middle of the verse, he might bring us to God. You see, our, our sin had separated us from God. Sin is the great barrier between us and him. We rightly stand under his judgment and cannot know peace with him without the problem of sin being addressed and dealt with. But here's the glory of the gospel. At the cross, Jesus stood in our place and paid our debt so that as we trust in him, simply by faith, we receive forgiveness and our record is wiped clean. He removes the barrier and he brings us back into right relationship with God. Now that is the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. That is the very heart of the message of the gospel and it is the key to everything here in this passage. You see, we will not be willing to embrace cost and endure scorn. We will not be willing to suffer unjustly until we see and understand fully what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us until we recognize and remember that he has suffered unjustly in our place and for our salvation. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Zealous for What is Good. Well, maybe you want to grow in your relationship with Christ. That is a good thing, but you're looking for some help. Well, I hope you'll come to the website. We've got a ton of resources to help you take that next step in your walk with Christ. One of those could be our weekly devotional. It's called Moment of Truth. You can check that out. You can also sign up for our newsletter and get connected on our social media feeds like Facebook or Instagram. One other idea, check out our YouTube channel. Not only can you listen to Jonathan teach, but you can watch the videos as well. You can find the YouTube channel when you go to YouTube and simply search for Encounter the Truth. Or we'll link you to it through our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. 
Well, if you did join us a little bit late, we are in the book of First Peter. We're in chapter 3, looking at verses 13 to 22 today. Back to the message. Here's Jonathan. Peter goes on to speak of the resurrection victory of Jesus now. This is easily, these, in these coming verses, one of the more challenging little sections of the New Testament. Challenging to handle just in terms of basic interpretation and understanding. Maybe you were sitting there, I don't know, as we read the passage, just kind of smiling to yourself, wondering what on earth we were going to do with these verses. You know, Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison and all the rest. And I will say this is actually one of the uh, joys and the challenges of expository preaching, consecutive working through books preaching. We commit ourselves just to work through what comes up in the text. We don't skip over the tricky bits. We're required to grapple together with the whole counsel of God. And through that, we, we grow together. Now, I won't pretend that these verses are easy or straightforward. I think there are legitimate differences of opinion about how to read them. But let me suggest a way through that I think makes good sense in light of the context. We always want to read text in context in light of Peter's wider concern in this passage and in this book. Remember with me the big picture here. Peter is equipping us for a confident and positive witness in the face of ungodly opposition. He's telling us that we may have to suffer even following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. But Peter not only points us to the cross, he points us beyond the cross to the resurrection victory of Christ. And that's the focus and the emphasis here. And it's very, very important. Suffering is not the end of the story. Persecution does not lead to defeat for the people of Jesus Christ. The story ends in victory even for us as it did for our Lord. Jesus died, but he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in his resurrection and his ascension on high, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he has proclaimed his victory over sin and death, even to the spiritual enemies of God who have long opposed him, but who are now defeated enemies. That's, that's the broad logic here of what's going on. That's what Peter's telling us. Let me read the key section again for us, verse 18, and, and if you would just follow with me. Peter writes, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And I think that's in the power of the Holy Spirit here, made alive in the spirit, in which or, or by whom you could say he went, he went after the resurrection. He went after being made alive by the spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. After the resurrection, Peter is telling us Jesus went and he proclaimed his victory to the spiritual enemies of God, to the, the fallen angels who opposed him long ago in particularly wicked days, and we'll come to that, when society was marked by corrupt and distorted sinful behavior. Now, the story that Peter is referring us to here is an unusual one, but actually a very, very significant one in the Old Testament and in the history of human sin and of the corruption of the world. You may or may not remember the story. It's easy, actually, to pass over it. This is the start of Genesis 6. I'm not going to read it just because of time, but it is Genesis 6 that we're being taken to. We're, we're just ahead of the great flood of Noah's day. And at that time, at the beginning of the chapter, there was a particular incident of wickedness that was kind of the final straw for God, leading to the destruction of the world through the flood. In the Genesis account, we're told that spiritual beings, fallen angels, it seems, came to earth and became involved with human women, even marrying them and having children by them. 
The fixed boundaries between humanity and spiritual beings in God's created order are broken within this strange incident. And, and what we're being told is that an ordered cosmos, an ordered world is breaking down into disorder. Very unusual story to be sure. But it is signifying in a very dramatic way the breakdown of the created order because of sin, because of the fall. And it directly leads to a terrible judgment from God, the great flood, that all but wipes out life on the earth. These fallen angels, they were punished themselves, as we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, in Second Peter and in Jude actually, placed in confinement, placed in prison, awaiting the final judgment day. Now, here is a kind of pinnacle and a symbol of all that has gone wrong in the created order. A great manifestation of evil and disorder and rebellion against God. And what Peter is telling us, and this is the crucial thing, is that in his resurrection and ascension, Jesus Christ has proclaimed his victory to these spiritual enemies of God. He has shown them that he has won, that he has conquered evil, that sin would not have the final word in the in the creation of God. He has proclaimed to them that he is supreme above all things. Now, in the days of that ancient rebellion, God brought his judgment down, but he saved a few, verse 20, eight persons, the family of Noah. He brought them through the waters and into new life, the other side of judgment. And in this, there is a gospel parallel. There is a correspondence, as Peter says. In fact, the flood and the salvation of Noah and his family is an ancient picture that points forward to a greater gospel reality. God brings his saved people through the waters of baptism, verse 21, and, and picture baptism going down into the water. Going down into the water is actually a picture of passing through the waters of judgment, but doing so in safety, going down into death and coming out the other side as Noah's family did in the flood. The symbolism of that doesn't save anyone. This isn't about the physicality of the removal of dirt from the body, as Peter points out. No, this is about a spiritual reality. This is about an appeal to God through faith, which baptism expresses visibly, an appeal to God for salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who went down into those waters himself who faced the judgment at the cross of Calvary for us, who rose again in victory. And that appeal by faith, which baptism symbolizes so beautifully, that appeal, here's the thing, it does save. It's a saving appeal. We call upon God and he saves. The symbol, partaking in the symbol of baptism, is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his saving work at the cross of Calvary. Rising again in baptism is an identification with him in his resurrection victory. You see, the risen Christ, end of verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, Jesus died, but he rose victorious. Yes, he faced evil in this world, opposition, rejection, and worse, but he ascended on high. And in his ascended life, he has proclaimed his victory to the ugliest spiritual powers ever seen, to the enemies of God. And here's the thing, we who trust him are with him, identified with him in baptism, cleansed by his saving work, kept by his great power. And knowing all this, knowing all this, we see that we are safe. 
we see that we are secure just in trusting ourselves to him when the pressure rises, when the opposition comes, when things in this world are ugly and hard and complex and grievous. We might wonder why Peter takes us back to Genesis 6. I found myself wondering that for a few moments in preparation and the rebellion there and to the spirits in prison and all those things. But what he's doing is important. He is giving us the big picture of the problem of evil in the history of this world and the grand sweep then of the victory of Jesus Christ. He is taking us back to some of the darkest and ugliest days, some of the most sinful days in human history. And he's showing us that Jesus has been victorious over the ugliest forces of sin and evil that have ever darkened and distorted this world. He is showing us that you and I, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we are on the side of triumph and of glory. And seeing that big picture, actually, we are given all that we need to be patient, to be gracious, to be trusting, to be confident in the face of whatever may come in this dark and darkening world. You see, our Savior who suffered before us, he has gone into heaven. And he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What posture should you and I take as we go out into the world this week? What should be our approach? How should we prepare ourselves to walk out into a skeptical and a sometimes scornful culture as representatives of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter says there is a zeal we must foster, a, a deep zeal to do good in the name of Jesus Christ, to be a bright witness for him and to leave the consequences of that to him. And there is for us a model to follow, the model of our Savior who suffered once, who rose again in glory, who ascended in victory so that every power that might oppose us in the world today is ultimately now subject to him and him alone. How do we face the world this week? We face it with peace and with confidence and even with joy as a people who belong to such a gracious Savior and such a glorious Lord. Let's pray together as we entrust ourselves to him afresh for the days that are to come. God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth that he might take our place and die the death that we deserve, that we might be brought back to you and we might know you and have peace with you. We thank you for his great model of facing suffering and doing so as the righteous one. We pray that you would teach us to entrust ourselves to him, to wait upon him, and in this world to be faithful witnesses to him and for him, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jonathan Griffiths, wrapping up our message, Zealous for What is Good. It's part of our series, Faith Under Fire, where we're taking a look at the book of 1 Peter. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series or you want to go back and listen again, you can do that at our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, whether you listen to this radio program on the radio, online, or even through the Encounter the Truth app, all that we do is made possible through your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book. It's called The Definition of Christianity, written by David Gooding and John Lennox. And uh, Jonathan... Who is David Gooding and John Lennox? Well, these are two very brilliant scholars, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to be able to offer this book this month because I think you're going to find their scholarly engagement and their intellectual ability so stimulating as you read this book and as you go through this study. 
David Gooding, who's actually now passed away, was a professor at Queen's University, Belfast, and a, an extraordinarily able Bible scholar. In fact, David contributed an essay to the first book I ever published, so he has a special place in my heart. John Lennox, who co-authored this book, is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, and he was actually at Oxford when I was an undergraduate there, and I remember listening to his teaching and to his engagement with the questions surrounding the interface of faith and culture and being absolutely mesmerized. He's a brilliant scholar. He's a profoundly able apologist, and I think that you're going to find this book hugely interesting and very, very stimulating. Well, the book is called The Definition of Christianity, and we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for financially supporting Encounter the Truth this month. Give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-998-7884. That's 1-833-99-TRUTH or online at EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.